2: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
1: Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Basteck. While things are still unsettled in the world we are going to be turning to some of our favorite episodes from the past four years, which I hope you'll enjoy. The tiny village of Gapun in Papua New Guinea is home to an equally tiny language called Taiap. No more than a few hundred people have ever lived in Gapun, So no more than a few hundred people have ever spoken Taiap, an isolate language unrelated to any other on the island or the planet. Our guest this episode, the anthropologist Don Kulik, has been visiting the village since 1985, at one point living there for 15 months to document the Gapun way of life, eat a lot of sago palm pudding, and study Tayyip, which, even when he arrived more than 30 years ago, was already dying. Today, only about 40 people speak Tayyip, and Kulik predicts that the language will be stone-cold dead in less than 50 years. How did that happen? And perhaps more importantly, what else has died alongside the language? What cultural and social and economic losses paved the way for what we call language death? And might the way that we're framing this loss be totally backwards? Dan Kulik is the author or editor of more than a dozen books, including a dictionary and grammar of Tyap. He is Distinguished University Professor of Anthropology at Uppsala University in Sweden where he directs the research program Engaging Vulnerability. His newest book, A Death in the Rainforest, is a memoir of his time in the village and a record of what life in Gapun was really like, all the things that don't quite fit into a grammar of a language. He joins us in the studio to talk about what life is really like in Gapun, then and now, and what language death really means. Thank you so much for coming into the studio, Don. great
2: pleasure. Thank you.
1: Um, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't start by asking you to introduce yourself in tie Up
2: In tie Up. Yeah. Uh suman ainde, uh, ngah. oh God, um, that, what, I've never introduced myself in tie Up. <laughs> Everybody knows who I am. Uh,
1: My name is maybe?
2: They don't say my name is Ngā Ngā Saraki Ngā Sarakianda. My I am Saraki, uh-huh. which is the name that they gave me in um, in in Gapun. So Ngā Sarakianda Ngā uh, Kemrak munje I come from far away. Um, Tayap Mer Rambrukrunet. Uh, I wrote a book about Tayap.
1: That's a lot. That's way more than I was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Um, well, I mean, it sounds. So cool, I have to say. You know, reading it is totally different from hearing it. Uh-huh. Um, it's like it's like getting a missive from another corner of the world. D- the language itself. The t- language t- it itself. Yeah.
2: There's not a lot of the language actually in the book. Um, it's more about the shift from that language to t- Tok Pisin, which is a pidgin language, which is also a very, very interesting language.
1: So... How did you end up in a village in the middle of the jungle where few residents of Papua New Guinea themselves even travel? It's really remote.
2: It's quite remote. Um, I ended up there because I was interested in writing about language death, how languages die. And I was interested in that because at the time I started in the mid-1980s, there wasn't a huge amount of work done on that topic. There had been work done on third-generation language death. So, for example, when immigrants come to the United States, they don't teach their children their native language because they want their kids to get ahead in school. And then the kids don't learn the language and they don't teach it to their kids. So there's been studies about that. But I was very interested in, in thinking about that phenomenon of language death in a situation that didn't have anything to do with immigration or emigration, that people were just basically in their, where they have always lived, but suddenly the language dies. And Papua New Guinea has the most languages in the whole world. So there's about 8 million people in the country, and there's about 800 languages in that country. And that fascinated me. I thought, that's amazing. What? Wh- how did that happen? Why do people speak such tiny languages? How does that work? And I went to Australia to ask linguists who had mapped out the languages in in Papua New Guinea. And they only started really doing this in the 1950s. So before the 1950s and 1960s, really no one knew how many languages were spoken in Papua New Guinea, what kind of languages they were, where they were spoken, how many people spoke them, none of that. So in the fifties, sixties and seventies, linguists, mostly from Australia, did that. Missionaries, of course, were also very active in the linguistic description of the country because they wanted to translate the Bible. They wanted to convert people into Christianity. So based on what missionaries knew and what linguists knew, we had by the early 1980s a pretty good map of the languages in Papua New Guinea because about a third of the languages spoken in Papua New Guinea are spoken by fewer than 500 people. And they're different languages. They're not different dialects. They're not different varieties. They're different languages. You know, the difference between English German and Russian within a two-hour walking distance. And they're small languages, tiny languages. So I suspected that something would be happening to them today after colonialism, after conversion to Christianity, after all of these things. And it turned out that that was true. So I went to a linguist and I said, you know, where, where do you think I should go? And he, his name is Don Laycock. He's, he, he died um, in the early 1990s. But he had... Paddled a canoe around the lower Sepik region of Papua New Guinea, which is in the north of the country. It's a massive great river. It's it's I think one of the largest rivers in the world after maybe the Amazon and the Mississippi. It's a massive massive great river. He paddled around a canoe and he took word lists. So he'd meet you, for example, and he'd say, "All right, how do you say man?" how do you say woman how do you say star how do you say tree how do you say dog pig all of that and so he wrote down these lists and then he compared the languages on the basis of these lists now in the area where i ended up working he didn't actually go to the village i ended up in gapun because it's very difficult to get to but he did meet two people from gapun in another village and people told him it's like oh these these two guys they come from a village in the rainforest Um, it's kind of hard to get to, but they speak a totally different language from us. So we interviewed them, and it turns out that they did. They spoke a very different language. It turns out to be an isolate language, so it's not related to anything. And he got this list, and so when I went to, and he never went to the village because, as I say, it was very difficult to get, it is difficult to get to. And when I went to see him, he said, well, why don't you go there? Because it's a little tiny language, and something must be happening to it. And so I, I did. I went there. And I ended up, I liked the people. I didn't like the milieu. I mean, it's in the middle of a swamp. It's not a very pleasant place to be. But I liked the people. I thought they were funny. Um, they were They were nice. They were very, very hospitable, very gracious. And so I just, I went there for the first time for one month to see if I could, you know, if they'd let me stay with them, if they'd let me. And also if I could manage to do it. And I decided I did. And then I went back and I stayed for 15 months.
1: So how do you invite yourself essentially to stay with a group of strangers who are totally different from you yeah. for months and months at a time?
2: Well, that was that was something that I still wonder about, actually, frankly, how I had the nerve to do it. But basically, I just turned up one day and I couldn't speak Tokpis and I certainly couldn't speak Taiyap. So I had explained in English to people who knew some English that I wanted to come to this village. And, and basically, I said to them, I want to describe your language. I want to write a book about your language, I said. And they were accommodating. They, they wondered, you know, why is this strange white man here? What does he really want? He says he wants to write a book. They don't know what books are. They know the Bible. They were converted to Christianity in the 1950s, so they've seen a Bible, but they've never read a book. They don't know books. So I want to write a book about their language. That was very intriguing to them. And they let me stay, I think, partly out of sheer curiosity. What would I do? Who was I? What was I there for?
1: And they did think you were a ghost in the end, right? Well,
2: this is a very, uh, yes, they did. And this is not uncommon in many parts of Papua New Guinea. Um, Papua New Guinea was contacted at various points from the middle of the 1800s to, I think, the last first contact occurred in the 1930s. So we're talking not too long ago. And the thing that Papua New Guineans were confronted with were beings who were totally alien. I mean, you know, white skin. They looked like people, but they spoke languages that no one had ever heard. And also they had enormous power. They had things that Papua New Guineans had never even imagined. They had airplanes. They had weapons. Um, they had clothes. And so Papua New Guineans really had to fit them in to their way of thinking about the world. And the way that many of them fit white people into their world is to identify them as, as ghosts, as dead Papua New Guineans who have returned. And that is the way that I was seen in in, um, in Gapun. I was, they knew exactly who I was, and they told me. And you know, that, was, that was, I think, another reason why they were so gracious and accommodating, because they thought that I had access to all of the goods and cargo that they really want. Because what they really can't figure out, or what they've been trying to figure out since the beginning of the 1900s, is how is it that these beings with white skin have so much more than we do? And their explanation in the village is largely cosmological. They have more stuff than we do because they have stronger spiritual powers. They have a stronger God, quite simply. And so to convert them to Christianity was very easy because Mm -hmm. they thought, well, you know, it's like ours aren't giving us all these things. Right. Let's change. Let's (laughs) switch. And they did. But they still haven't figured it out. And the villagers really want to change. They spend a lot of time talking about how to change. But again, in this village they don't just want to change, they want to change into something. And what they want to change into is white people because white people have all of the stuff that they really want. You know, in other places, the Papua New Guinea villages said, you know, we don't want that. We want our traditions. We want to continue our traditions. But they were f- kind of few and far between. Or they got something out of it. So they got cash crops and they started getting cash. They started getting money. They could start sending their kids to school. They got something. Mm-hmm. But in the part of the country that I've worked in, it's very, it, there's not a lot that goes on there. The people that I work with are not materially much better off than their great grandparents. I mean, they wear clothes, they have pots, they have steel tools, of course, but they don't have a lot of money. They have tried to sell cash crops for generations. None of it has ever worked out. You know, they shoot pigs and, and cassowaries in the rainforest. They grow crops in their gardens. They process sago, which is a palm. That's their staple food. And that's the same thing that their great grandparents did. So I think that one of the reasons, again, why they, you know, why they let me live there was because they wanted me to give things back. They wanted they wanted a road to the things that they really they see that white people have, but they can't figure out why white people have them and they don't.
1: Did you ever try to explain it to them?
2: I did, but the thing is that I you know I was there as an anthropologist so I wasn't there as a missionary I didn't want to convert them to my way of thinking I wasn't there as a politician to sort of you know to convince them of you know that my way of looking at the world was the was the right one and that theirs was wrong and so I was it was always a very fine balance between listening to them and and and, and you know trying to understand what they thought that was my job I wasn't there to do anything else I really wanted to understand what they thought about the world but when they did tell me things like white people are dead, I, you know, I would say, um, you know, why do you think that? I wouldn't say no, because for me to say no would be heard as kind of a rejection of them because they figured it all out. They have figured it out. And so for me to say no would be heard as a denial rather than as a statement of truth. So I would say, well, why, you know, why do you think that? And they would explain to me why they thought that, and I would you know I would listen um, and it was it was not it was it was difficult it was difficult
1: so you realized at some point that you were arriving in the village at a particular moment in terms of its language death.
2: Yes. I realized quite quickly that no child under the age of 10 spoke the language. And this is a major shift because this language has been spoken for nobody knows how long because all of the languages in Papua New Guinea, none of them have any writing systems. They're all unwritten. So nobody knows how long the linguistic histories of the languages are. But a language takes a long time to develop. So, you know, hundreds of years, maybe even thousands of years. The place where I worked, Gapun, about 6,000 years ago, the place where the people live used to be an island. And about 6,000 years ago, the sea receded. And the Sepik River was formed, and that island joined the mainland. But the fact that there's a group of people on the place that used to be an island speaking a language that is unrelated to any other seems to indicate, I mean, we have no way of knowing, but it seems to indicate that maybe this is a particularly ancient language. So what was happening in the 1980s is that suddenly, for some reason, children were not learning it. And what they were learning instead is a language called Tokpisin, which is a pidgin language, which means that it's an invented language. And pidgin languages are languages that are basically when colonialists need labor, they take men from various places, put them on plantations, and then start giving them orders now the men especially in a place like Papua New Guinea where there are so many small languages they don't speak a common language. So imagine you're put in a group with you know people who you can't communicate with except through you've got to learn to speak the language of your overseers, your white overseers because they're giving you orders that you have to carry out. And in this context what happens and it didn't just happen in Papua New Guinea it's happened all over the world for example in the Caribbean um, a language develops. So what happens is that the the what is called the lexifier language, that is to say the language that gives its vocabulary, that tends to be a European language. And this is the case in, in Tokpisin. The word itself, the language, means Tokpigeon or bird talk. Um, and but the grammar tends to be something else. The grammar tends to be a sort of a local amalgamation. And that's what happened in in, in this case. Tokpisin arose and when the men who were transported away to the plantations came back to the villages they spoke tokpisin and they started teaching people mostly young men in the village for at first how to speak tokpisin and over the decades because this began happening in the early 1900s over the decades the language basically crowded out or it 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 caused the vernacular language to 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 disappear and so that was a very interesting situation because the people in Gapwin had not gone anywhere. They hadn't actually moved, and they, did, you know, they didn't want to move, and they actually did not want their language to die. Nobody said it's an ugly language. Nobody said our children need to learn Tok Pisin or some other language in order to succeed in school. Everybody said, we like Taiyap. We're, we're doing exactly what our own parents did, and they blamed their children. Which I thought was great. I mean, they you know, they'd point to their little babies and say they're not speaking Thai-up because they don't want to speak it. And they're you know, pointing to a two-year-old baby. So
1: it sounds like people learn language in Gapun a little differently too, whether they're learning Thai-up or Tokpisin, right?
2: Exactly. The people of Gapun, they have a very specific understanding of what a child is and and development. And one of the major differences between their understanding of how a child develops and, for example, white middle-class you know, American understandings of children is that in Gapwin, people don't believe that children can be taught. So a child is born very, very willful, children are born with very big heads, they say. And one of the things that I thought was so wonderful when I learned it is that there there's three words a child is thought to say. I mean, you know, in, in white and middle-class American no. culture, mommy, pa, pa. pa, mommy, daddy, papa, mama. That's not the case in Gapun. They're, the first word a child is held to say is is oku, which means I'm leaving. I'm getting out of here. And that to me was a real eye-opener. I thought, what and of course children everywhere babble. So children in, in, in Gapun make sounds that could be interpreted as mama papa, and children here in, in you know white middle class cultures make sounds that could be interpreted as something like oku oku oku. So it's not that it's not that babies really are saying these things, but parents project onto the child their own understandings of what child development looks like. And the second word is manda, which means I'm sick of this. And the third word is ayata, which means stop it. So from that, I understood that parents understand children to be very willful, very stubborn. And so what parent socialization is, is it's to try to calm the kid down. It's to, (laughs) to try to pacify the child. And a child, a little baby, gets anything it wants, anything it wants. And parents also, they don't speak to children, so they don't speak to babies because babies don't talk back. And there's no point in having a conversation with a being that can't, you know, hold up its end of the conversation. So they, they don't really speak to children, to babies, and they give them anything they want. So that means that children actually don't start speaking until later than in, for example, white middle-class culture, where you know parents are continually encouraging their children to speak, and so children do speak earlier. Mm-hmm. So it did. It made sense to me after discovering that, that parents actually would blame their children for not speaking, tie up, because they think that their children are very willful, very stubborn, very big-headed is the word there, big-head, big-head. So that made sense to me, but that's a cultural explanation. Um, what I discovered is that when children start to interact with others, that is to say, when the next baby comes along. So if you're a baby, the world is your oyster. You get everything. But as soon as your mother has another child, then you get nothing. Then you have to start giving the new baby everything. And at that point, I noticed that parents started speaking much more tokpisin to their children than tie up in order to get them to do what the parents wanted them to do. Because children are very useful in this village. They're ordered around all the time. They're ordered to, you know, get, get me a knife, get me an ember, get me this, give me some betel nut, do all of it. And the kids have to do it. And so in order for the children to understand the orders, the parents switched to Tok Pisin because they thought it was an easier language. And that, of course, encouraged the children to speak peace and So it's a very interesting dynamic. It's where the the global inequalities intersect with the mothers and their babies. That's history moving. I don't know if it's forward, but it's history moving. And how that impacts on a mother talking to her child without really even realizing it, because they didn't realize that they were speaking more Tok into to their babies than tie up
1: right just repeating with their children the same patterns that they experienced with their husbands who experienced it with white masters who used pidgin english to order people, to order around. people around exactly exactly yeah. well so what's what's lost when a language like that dies because it sounds like a whole lot more than the language is dying but also at the same time it's separated from a lot of the other cultural shifts that are happening
2: exactly i think that what what dies when a language dies is the last remnants of a of a utterly broken culture. So what linguists say is that we should mourn, we should lament the fact that all of these languages are dying. And I agree with that, of course, because languages are, are unique, they're delicate, they're trellised, they're amazing things. But to focus on language and not realize why the language is dying, comes across often, and I don't think that linguists mean it like this, but I do think it comes across often as a kind of a chastisement. Why did you give up your language? Why didn't you teach your children this language? You should have done it, blaming the victims, as it were. And that, I think, ignores the incredible history of of colonialism, of conversion to Christianity, of capitalist expansion into these places, which has left these people bereft of everything else. So to focus on language and say you really should keep that, I think ignores the fact that all the rest of it is already gone. The villagers first encountered white people in 1917. And I went to the village first in 1985. So that's not even 100 years. It went very, very quickly. And really what happened was that the villagers lost everything. And they lost everything because of the colonial administration. Australia, as the old men said, they locked up the spears. Because in this part of Papua New Guinea, there was continual warfare between different different groups, and I don't think it was a very pleasant place. I mean, I think it's important to say that that I really don't think that living in Papua New Guinea in the pre-colonial times was a really nice place to be, because you were always you always risked being shot, murdered, abducted, raped. I mean, it was it was not a not a happy place. Um, and the Australian administration imposed peace. So they you know, in, it, it's, they, they say they pacified them. And that sounds a bit condescending. But really what it meant is that they, they imposed a forced disarmament. So people could not fight in the same ways any longer. But at the same time, and that's all, th- I think, you know, I have no objection to that whatsoever, except that at the same time you had missionaries coming in who were telling people that their traditional ways were satanic you had colonialists trying to suck people out of the communities to make them into plantation laborers. You, had, you didn't have schools in this area until the 1970s. But the whole thrust of any kind of change was to forget your traditions and to move on and to progress and to be like white people. And the people of this village, Gapun, they wanted that. They wanted it. So it wasn't that it was imposed upon them. They actively sought to be like white people. They actively converted to Christianity, to Catholicism. They wanted a school in their village, and they finally got one, not in their village, but in a village two hours away where they sent their kids until it just broke down and finished in the mid-1990s. But they wanted that. And in that process, they basically gave up. They divested themselves of all of their traditional myths, all of their traditional song cycles, all of their traditional funerary rites. And these were, this was the glue that held the society together. And what they expected and wanted was something else. What they got was nothing.
1: There are some really high estimates for how many languages will die in the next 100 years. Anywhere from 50% to 90% of the 7,000-odd languages we speak today. In Papua New Guinea, that number is likely much closer to 90%. And that sounds unbelievable until you consider that half the world's population speaks only 10 languages, leaving a tiny, vulnerable handful to speak the rest. So when just that handful of people drops their language in favor of one of the big ones, the language dies. Don Kulik's book, A Death in the Rainforest, is a reminder that a whole lot more than the language dies that saving the language alone won't save its speakers from the very things, like colonialism, like economic disenfranchisement, that killed it in the first place. We've got links in the show notes to Don's book, more writings on language death, and a video on how to prepare Sago Palm Pudding, should you be inspired to venture into the jungle to fell a tree yourself. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.